Well, hey, happy Easter, everybody. Yeah, Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. And we are super stoked to have you here with us to celebrate that today. Um, you know, when it comes to Easter, there, there is literally no other day on the Christian calendar that is as, as, as important as this day. In fact, um, the Bible says that um, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. If Christ has not been raised, then Christmas is just a nice holiday about some legendary guy that was born in difficult circumstances. If Christmas, or if, if Easter did not happen, Good Friday is just the story about a guy that, that died in, in, in some tragic circumstances. But with Easter, with the tomb empty, it changes absolutely everything, doesn't it? And so we are here today to celebrate that and to celebrate that, that God is alive. And I want to read to you out of Mark 16 this morning, where it says this, Saturday evening when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb, and on the way they were asking each other, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. He is alive. And our, our prayer for you this morning is that you would encounter him, you would encounter the risen Savior this morning, and know for yourself that, that he is alive and that he's here to speak to you and to, to, to bring life like we sang about this morning. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Rich. I'm the campus pastor here at CTK Ferndale. And we just want to say a big welcome to all you that are joining us online. We're really glad that you have joined us today. And uh, I'm going to talk a lot about Jesus this morning. So I hope you came ready for that. All right? Um, 1982 was a pretty good year for me. Um, for those of you doing the math in your head right now, if you are under the age of 40, you were not alive during 1982. That was 40 years ago. But as for me, I was seven years old. Um, it was the year that I discovered uh, video games like the legendary Pitfall and Pong. Uh, it was the year that my beloved Stanley uh, or uh, Vancouver Canucks went to the Stanley Cup Finals where they promptly got swept for games, but that's a different story. Um, and it was the year where, as for me, as a second grader, I had my very first crush. And before I was even able to barely comb my own hair and brush my own teeth, I had been smitten by the love bug. And no, it wasn't Becky, um, but don't worry, she's given me permission to tell this story this morning, all right? <laughs> Not only did me and this other girl share the same classroom, we also went to the same church. It appeared that God himself was setting this whole thing up. Um, only problem, she didn't know it yet. And, uh, but I had plans to change that. I had a new mission in life to show this second grade girl that I was crazy about her and that, that I was the little man for her. And, and so if we were at the beach, if, if there was, we were at the beach hanging out with our friends, um, if we were chucking rocks in the water, I thought, okay, I've got to grab this rock 
and chuck it just a little bit further so she sees just how strong I am. Um, if I was playing hockey, um, I played hockey, this is, I grew up in Canada, and if I was at the hockey rink playing a hockey game and I happened to notice that she was in the stands, it was like the afterburners got cranked on. I would skate a little faster, skate a little smoother, shoot the puck just a little bit harder. But I got the sense that it wasn't working, um, that she did not feel the same way about me. And I can remember, this is no lie, this is back when uh, Superman... You know, Superman 1, 2, 3, 4, that whole series with Christopher Reeve came out, and it was like my big movie back in the day. And I remember going to bed at night and just imagining and just visualizing if only I had Superman powers. I could, like, have my cape on. I could, like, fly over to her house and, and pick her up, and we would just, like, would fly, like, Superman and Lois Lane all over Canada and the world. And then in 1984, my dreams got crushed. Her and her family moved away. And it was a tragic ending, at least for me. Because sadly, I don't think she ever knew that those fast skating skills, that well-combed hair, and those rocks thrown way out in the water, she never had the foggiest idea that she was being pursued by that little second-grade Richie back in the day. Richie. That is the only time you're allowed to call me Richie, okay? <laughs> you might not know this today, um, but through everything that you've been, in through, you've been through in your life, both the good and the bad, you too are being pursued. Someone is chasing after your heart and has been since the very beginning of time. And this morning what I'd like to do is I'd like to tell you about this person and, and about the pursuit that's been happening for your heart. Because it would be tragic for you to live your entire life and never know that you're being pursued. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, um, we're going to be reading a story this morning about a, a dead guy who came back to life. This guy's name is not Jesus. His name is Lazarus, or Lazarus. And the story starts uh, like this. It's in John chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, the Bible tells us, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who had poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So here we have this story that's being set up in the Bible. In, the, in this story, there's four characters, uh, obviously Jesus, um, and then there's, there's three siblings, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And although Jesus loves everyone, you know, we, we talk about it all the time in the church, God so loved the world, he really loves these three siblings. And they really love him. At one time, Mary, like the Bible mentioned here, Mary had given up what was about a year's worth of wages, uh, worth of perfume, and she had an, an extravagant demonstration of love for Jesus. She had poured that perfume on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And then when it comes to Lazarus, um, he only needs to be referred to as the one you love, and instantly Jesus knows who they're talking about. These four, Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are tight, very tight. And when the messengers reach Jesus, they are likely a little taken back and maybe even insulted with his response. The Bible says when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son... That's Jesus may be glorified through it. 
Now Jesus loved Martha. Here we see it again. He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he booked the first bus out of town and was at Lazarus' side by sundown. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. There wasn't buses back in the day. It would actually make very logical sense for the story to go something like that, but it doesn't. Instead, the Bible says that when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Hmm. So either Jesus doesn't understand the urgency of the situation here, or he is up to something much bigger than a friendly visit to see a sick friend. And I just want to pause here for, for a few minutes and, and have some real talk about life. Life is hard, in case you haven't noticed, and, and life rarely, if ever, goes in the direction that you have planned for it to go. Has anybody else noticed that besides me? You remember those elementary school dreams where you just wanted to be that astronaut or you wanted to be that, 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 that star football player for some football team? For me, my big dream, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. I wanted to be an archaeologist that was going down in the caves, discovering hidden treasure, all this kind of stuff. My other dream was to be a guitar player in a rock and roll band. And uh, as you can see, um, that wouldn't work because I, I couldn't grow long hair back then, and I certainly couldn't grow long hair today. Um, Maybe you have plans for your life that revolve around a certain job. You've, you've had plans around what retirement's going to look like, plans around your family, and something goes wrong. An addiction comes along and ruins everything. Maybe a, a spouse wants a divorce. Maybe your family just gets torn to shreds. And then, then Jesus comes along, if you're the follower of Jesus, and, and he, he comes and he shows up and says, I'm here that you could have, can have life and life to the full. And we interpret that to mean, okay, he's going to make my life easier. He's going to make my life more comfortable. He's going to make my life problem-free. But then we lose a job, lose loved ones. The pain of a pandemic with global shutdown hits, and we're going, God, what in the world? You're supposed to make things go better. God, you have the power to make things better. What gives? And it's interesting in this story how Jesus he knows that Lazarus is sick. In fact, he knows that Lazarus is, is so sick that he's about to die. Jesus has the power to change that. And so what does he do? Nothing. He stays put for two more long days. And while he's doing nothing, Lazarus does die. And eventually, Jesus actually goes, with, uh, goes to see Mary and Martha. And when he does... Um, neither Mary or Martha sugarcoat their disappointment with Jesus. They, they both make the exact same statement at, at different times. They say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you ever been there before? Where you're going, God, if you had been there, I wouldn't have been rejected by all my family and all my friends. God, if you had been there, I wouldn't have lost the business. God, if you had been there, life would have turned out Different. It wouldn't have turned out this way. And here's Mary and Martha in this story where they are confused. They are disappointed in Jesus' non-response. Now, if you've been around church at all, you know how this story is going to end. Um, but if you skip through to the ending, you will miss the reason why Jesus gives for his apparent non-response. He doesn't actually leave them guessing why he stays put for a couple more days. He actually tells them why. And this is the reason he gives. He says, it is for God's glory 
so that God's son may be glorified through it. And I know what you're thinking. What kind of spiritual nonsense is that? It sounds like the kind of answer that some out-of-touch religious person would give. It's for God's glory. Glory be to God. Jesus says this. And what what does he mean by this? So I grew up in church. I grew up going to church. And, uh, God's glory is one of those church phrases that I've heard hundreds of times in some way or another. Maybe God's glory or glory to God or, or whatever. We used to sing songs like glory, glory, hallelujah, all that kind of stuff. Um, another song, to God be the glory, to God be the glory, to God be the glory, great things that he has done. Um, sometimes in church, um, at the, so the church that I grew up in, every Easter we would have this big, we call it the Easter rally. And it would be like nonstop church from Friday night through to Sunday morning. And in between, we'd eat lots and lots of food. But, but I remember growing up in church, and when someone would agree with something that the preacher would say, they would say something like, glory to God. Or if they were really spiritual, just a glory or something like that. But it would be this feedback that they give the, the preacher. That's, that's what I knew of glory to God. But this glory to God thing actually really matters. In fact, it matters more than anything. It matters more than, than, than the war in Ukraine. It matters more than any looming economic crisis. It matters more than your health. It matters more than what's for Easter dinner. It is really, 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 really important. So what is the glory of God? Well, let me explain it like this. Um, last week uh, was spring break, and uh, my family was, uh, most of my family was down in Redding, California. So we, my my, my uh, mother and father-in-law just moved there back in December, and I've got some family, and Becky's brother and his wife and their six kids all live down in Reading. So we thought, okay, we are ready for some heat. And so we went down there, time to just perfect. It was 85 degrees, which is just like right on the money. But um, while we were there, Becky's brother decided to take all the adult, adults out to this Italian restaurant. And when we sat down, he said those words that everybody loves to hear when they're, they're out for dinner. Don't worry about it. Tonight's my treat. Get whatever you want. Does anybody else love those words as much as I do? <laughs> now, whenever that happens, you kind of know how it works. There's this bit of an unspoken rule, and, and rather than just go out and just buy the most expensive thing on the menu you can find, you kind of pause and you wait, and you, you, you wait to see what the person buying is going to buy, right? Because you don't want to you want to be buying a dish that's kind of in the same price range as what they're buying. And some of you are learning some etiquette tonight or this morning. You're like, oh, that's how it works. You know, if they get a $20 fettuccine dish, you want to have something around 20 bucks. And, uh, and it's just this, this, this unspoken rule thing that, 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 that's out there. Well, right off the, bra- the bat, my brother-in-law says, I'm getting the steak and lobster. And not just sirloin or New York steak. He is getting filet mignon. Or as the French say, filet mignon. And <laughs> it is the most expensive dish on the menu. In fact, this dish is so expensive that they don't even have the price beside the dish. They have something that says, uh, hey, buddy, if you need to know the price of this, you can't afford it. Look somewhere else. 
And I kind of hesitate in those situations, even if I'm not paying. I don't know how you are, but um, my brother-in-law and his wife, they do well, but um, they're not wealthy by most people's standards. They have six kids, lots of bills, all that kind of stuff. And I'm quickly looking around the table, looking at this menu. I'm doing the math in my head. I'm going, okay, this is going to add up to be a $1,000 bill in no time. Meanwhile, my wife, Becky, who also happens to be his little sister, pipes up, and she says, I'll take the steak and lobster too, and while you're at it, pour me something expensive to drink. And that's just how she rolls. Needless to say, I went with the lasagna <laughs> only because I felt bad and I knew that Becky was going to get the most expensive dish on the menu and that she was going to share with me. <laughs> okay, so now the, the, the lasagna that I had was actually really good, but the steak and the lobster was, let's put it like this, it was glorious. And its glory was the way that that filet mignon just melted in your mouth. Its glory was the, the buttery goodness of that lobster tail. Its glory was the dessert, the, the decadent delight of tiramisu that we had afterwards. I had to look in the dictionary for a good word to describe it. Decadent is my new word for a good meal. It was glorious. And I'll stop there before I start salivating all over the, the stage. But... But when you're talking about the glory of something, you're talking about everything that is excellent, that is lovely, that is noble, or that is praiseworthy about it. Or if you're just to put it all into one word, the glory of something is all that is good about it. And, and by the way, you want to know the best way to bring glory to a great meal? You don't bring glory to a great meal by in the middle of dinner, you get up out of your seat, and you go to the back room, and you give the chef some tips on how it could be made a little bit better. You don't give glory to a good meal by begrudgingly eating it and then complaining the whole time because the garnish was kale lettuce and you would rather have leaf lettuce as the garnish of your meal. You know how you bring glory to something? You bring glory to it by simply enjoying it. By enjoying it. And when it comes to that which is glorious, there is nothing in all of creation that even comes close to the glory of God. He is infinitely beautiful. He is infinitely wonderful. He is abounding in love. He is filled with compassion. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly true. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise. There's no one as kind as he is, no one as strong as he is, no one as humble as he is, no one with, as, as joyful as he is, nobody as patient as he is. There is no one as creative as he is. His forgiveness, his mercy, his grace are incomparable to any other. He is more beautiful than the most majestic mountain landscape of more worth than all the diamonds and gold in the world. It's why right now, in this moment, the scene that is playing out in heaven is one of thousands upon thousands of angels worshiping him, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb to be, be, be praised in honor and glory and power forever and ever. God is glorious beyond anything that we could ever begin to comprehend. And the ultimate reason for everything, everything in all of creation, is that the glory of God would be put on display. And one of the reasons that, that God puts his glory on, his, on display, ultimately it's about his name. But one of the reasons that he does that is because it's, it's one of the ways he pursues your heart. In a way, he's kind of like that little second grader 
flipping the rock out as far as he can. God's like, I'm going to put my glory on display. I want them to know how big and how powerful I am. So I'm going to plant Mount Baker and the Twin Sisters in North Cascades right there so that every day they are reminded how big and powerful that I am. He says, I want them to know how I provide for them. So, so I'm going to give them the know-how and the skill and all that. I'm going to provide a job for them so they, so they know that I'm going to provide. I want them to know the greatness of my mercy and my creativity. And so when they hold that newborn baby for the first time, they're, they're going to re- be reminded. They're going to know that I am I'm, I'm this creative, merciful, good, gracious God. And when they walk through pain and suffering, and they think that the whole world has turned on them, I'll overwhelm them with my peace, with my rest, with my hope. And it's in that place that they'll know the glory of my goodness and they will know that having me is enough. And does God do this because we are so amazing? Because we're so incredible? So deserving? No. In fact, in light of our betrayal and rebellion against God, it is amazing that he even pursues us at all. The Bible says we filled our lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. Nobody in this room is exempt. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy. Other translations say rich in love, immense in mercy, and with incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. Such good news. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Back to our story. So Lazarus is sick. Soon he dies. His lifeless body is laid in a cold, dark tomb. His loved ones are devastated. They're just overcome, as you can imagine, that moment, just overcome with loss, overcome with despair, overcome with grief. It's a very similar scene to what would play out just two weeks later. Jesus, the great hope of the world, the one who so many people were just banking on, they were putting their hope in him, the one so many people loved and followed, he would be arrested, brutally tortured, nailed to a cross, and then laid in a cold, dark tomb. Well, eventually, Jesus arrives in Bethany where Mary and Martha are grieving. And like we just mentioned, they they didn't make any efforts to hide their disappointment in him. And is Jesus offended that they're disappointed? Is he upset? No, quite the opposite. He actually grieves with them. And then what what is the, the, the shortest verse in the entire Bible... Um, John eleven thirty five. it actually shows up in this story, and the, the verse is simply two words. Jesus wept. But at the same time, he knows that something bigger is happening here. He is pursuing not only Mary and Martha's hearts, but he's pursuing our hearts. And, and he's about to put his glory on display. He's about to show them just how good he is. He says to them in their grief, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He wants them to see that he is the life. He wants them to know that everything that they could ever want in this world is found in him. And he wants to say the same thing to you today. That everything that you've ever wanted in this life of yours 
whether that's joy or peace or hope or purpose, identity, belonging, it's all found and satisfied in the person of Jesus. And he came so that you would know this. In fact, he summed up his mission like this. I have come that they might have life and life to the full. Life to the full. It's his glory. And he wants you to see. And how do you receive this life? How do you, how, how do you, how do you, how do you just have your eyes open? It, he, he gave us the, 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 the key. He said it's by believing. By believing, it's when you look around at the things of this world that might be so shiny and so attractive, you look at the brokenness of your own life that's mired in sin and shame and guilt, and you say, Lord, forgive me. I was wrong. You are life. I put my faith and trust in you. And as Jesus sees the grief of Mary and Martha, he's filled with grief himself. And it's, it's such a beautiful picture. If you're ever walking through grief, if you're ever walking through loss, which we all will do at some point in our lives, you got to know that Jesus is right there with you. It's this beautiful picture of, of, of him weeping alongside of them. But another unexpected emotion begins to grow inside of him. The Bible says that when he saw all the weeping, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. And then he asked a simple question, where have you put him? This is Jesus, father to the fatherless, lover of our souls, the Lord of life. If this is a movie, this is the scene where his kids have been captured by the enemy, and he shows up and says, hey, I have a very particular set of skills. And, and skills that are going to make your life a nightmare. If you don't let my kids go, I will look for you. I will find you. I am coming for you. That's what's happening in this, this scene. And then he marches up to the tomb of Lazarus, looks death in the face, commands them to roll the stone away, and then he prays this beautiful prayer where he brings it all back to the display of his glory. He says, Father, I thank you that now you have heard me, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And then Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, if you're going to put your love and your power and your goodness, your greatness on display in Lazarus' situation, what's going to get the message across louder? Jesus showing up and recommending a new doctor in town? Or Jesus showing up and raising a dead man back to life? Just, just two weeks later, Jesus himself would be the dead man in the tomb. Only because he's God, because he is the resurrection and the life. He didn't need somebody else to pray over him or command him to come back to life. No, death could not hold him down. Instead, he would raise himself back to life. You see, Easter isn't just some lifeless religious holiday that happens once a year. It is a story of a God who is good, a God who is rich in mercy, a God who in love puts his glory on display over and over and over and over again. If you ever doubt or question the love of God, all you have to do is look to the cross 
the greatest demonstration of the love of God, the, the glory of his love that we'll ever see. He is constantly putting his glory on display. If you ever question the, the, the pow, his power and his might and his greatness, all you have to do is look to the empty tomb. He, he is alive. His resurrection forever removes any questions about his power, any questions about who wins in the end. In fact, the Bible says death has been swallowed up in victory. Swallowed up. God is pursuing you today. He's pursuing you today. You might not know it, but he is pursuing you today. And if you're looking for life, if you're looking for life, there's something inside of you going, there's got to be more than what I've got. Maybe you've been trying to find life in, in money and cars and homes and jobs and working with the ladder and you're realizing that it's not working. Maybe you've been trying to find life over here in a relationship, maybe in a spouse or your kids or what, what and you realize it's not working. Maybe you're looking for life in, in some kind of substance or an addiction. You're just hoping that it's going to cover everything else up and, and give you life. And you realize today it's not working. Guess what? You do not have to search any longer for the, the source of life. It's found in Jesus. It is found in Jesus. He is alive he has risen. He has gone to battle against the very gates of hell and conquered death itself so that you can live. You can have new life. And this life that he, he wants to give you, the only kind that truly satisfies is, is him himself. He wants you to know his glory. He wants you to taste and see that he is good. But to experience the resurrection life, there's something that you have to do. There's something that you have to do to step from death to life, you must believe. You must believe. You must believe him enough to say, okay, I am turning from my old way of living. I'm turning away from the things of the world. I'm turning away from those things that I thought would satisfy me, and I am turning to Jesus. It's this act that we call repentance. We turn from our old way, and we turn to Jesus, and we say, now I'm putting my faith and trust in him. This is what it means to be saved what it means to be saved. And it gets even better than that. You see, for, for Christians who have never really known Jesus, maybe they've known religion. They've known all about trying really hard to be good. They've known all about trying really hard to read their Bibles every day and trying really hard to show up in church every week and trying really hard to just behave here and behave there. And it's just nothing but trying, 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 trying. But they've never really known Jesus. To these folks, this next part is often missed. God is not after your begrudging service. He's not interested in being the leftover meal you begrudgingly eat. No, he wants to be enjoyed, to be savored, to be worshipped, to be adored. Why? Is it because he's on some kind of big massive ego trip? Is it because that, that he just knows that, that unless you, you, you adore him, he's just going to hit his... His, he's going to feel let down, offended. Is it because he's needy? No, it's because for him to steer you in any other direction than himself would actually be the most unloving thing that he could do. Because where else is he going to steer you? Money? Houses? Cars? Careers? 
I mean, all that stuff, you know it does not satisfy in the end. Where else is he going to steer you? When you die, all that stuff is, is gone. A job, you could get fired tomorrow. A person, we've all experienced what it's like to be let down by another person. And so Jesus says, you know what? Here's where you need to go. Me, he says. It's me. I have come that you might have life to the full. And he says, I'm here, not just for you to put your faith and trust in, but for you to savor, for you to enjoy, for you to know. Jesus said another time that, that eternal life, this is eternal life, to know Jesus, to know Jesus. He says this, he says, in John chapter 7, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. God is pursuing you today. He's pursuing you today. And the only question is, how are you going to respond to that pursuit? Every single one of us that's listening to this right now is going to respond to God's pursuit of your heart in one of two ways. It's either, yes, Jesus, I, I'm going to put my faith and trust in you. I'm going to follow you, even though I don't know what that all looks like. Something inside of me is, is saying, yes, this is it. This is the truth. This is the way. This is the life. You're either going to respond with yes, or you're going to respond with no. There's no maybe. Maybe is, is no. It's either yes or no. No, Jesus, not today. No, Jesus, I want to try some other stuff for now and see if that satisfies. No, Jesus, I think there might be some other options out there. No, Jesus, there might be some other religions. No, Jesus, I'm just not ready. No, Jesus, I'll do it when I get to be an adult and I'm no longer a teenager, when, when all the fun's behind me. No, Jesus, I'll just do it some other time. It's either yes or no. But know that he's pursuing you. He's pursuing you. As we wrap up this morning, I want to give you a moment to respond to Jesus. And I'm going to pray, and, and I just invite you in this moment to let the Spirit of God speak to you. And I invite you in this moment to even respond to Him. And go, okay, yeah, Jesus, today I'm, I'm following you. Jesus, today I'm putting my faith and trust in you. And maybe for someone in the room, that's going to be like the first time you've ever done that. Maybe for somebody else, it's going to be like a recommitment. At one time, you're fully trusting Him. At one time, you're totally following Him. Life was good, but then something happened, and you, you got sidetracked. You got derailed, and you started to question. You're like Mary and Martha. You're just disappointed in God. You're going, I don't know if I really want to follow God. But this morning, you know you hear Him calling to you, inviting you again to follow Him. And for you today, that, that step of faith and trust is going to be like a recommitment. And so as we pray this morning, I just encourage you, be listening to Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much today that, that you came that we might have life and life to the full. God, I believe that with all my heart. God, there is nothing in this world that satisfies like you. There's nothing in this world that will ever bring life like you bring life. Nothing. 
And Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that today, God, right here in this moment, Jesus, you are pursuing us. You are chasing us down. God, this week has been all about you putting your glory on display, all about you showing the greatness of your love by stretching out your hands and dying on a cross, all about you showing the greatness of your power and how you, you came to conquer all. You are putting your glory on display, God, as you pursue us, as you chase us down. And God, I, I, I know that God, in this moment, God, you are speaking to hearts of men, women, students, pursuing them in your glory. God, even in the midst, God, of our rebellion, God, even in the midst, God, of how we turn our back on you, God, you still pursue us. You do not give up on us. You keep on pursuing us. In fact, according to your word, it was while we were yet sinners that you gave your life and you died for us. God, I come against any lie today that, that, that would try to be planted where the, the lie that, that I've screwed up too much or my life is too big of a mistake, my life is too big of a failure for, for God. It is just not true. Father, I pray, Jesus, that Lord, um, in this moment, that Jesus, we would respond with yes. We respond with yes. And can you just keep your head bowed, your eyes closed this morning? What I want to do, I just want to give you, each one of you, a moment today on Easter Sunday, just a moment here, some space in our service to have a moment with Jesus. It's not about you and me. It's not about you and whoever you came here with, you and your family, you and your friend. It's, I want to give you a moment just with you and Jesus. His Holy Spirit is here. He's here. Why do we know that? Because the tomb is empty. He is alive and he is here. And I want to give you a moment with Jesus this morning. And he's speaking to you. He's pursuing you. He's asking you, how are you going to respond today? How are you going to respond today? And while your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, I want to ask you if you're willing to take a, a, a physical step to respond. You know, sometimes we can respond in our heart and that that in the economy of God, how things work, it's actually when you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that, that you're saved, the Bible says. But there's something about when you take some kind of physical step, either uh, telling somebody that you came with, hey, I put my faith and trust in Jesus today, or, or, or what I'm going to ask you in this moment right now is, is raise your hand. If, if God has been speaking to you, asking you, hey, how are you going to respond? And your answer is yes. God, I'm going to put my faith and trust in you. I'm going to ask if you could slip your hand up just as a, a way of saying, that is me. I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus, whether it's your first time, your second time of like recommitment. You're going, yes, I'm responding with yes. Awesome. Lots of hands up. You can, you can put those hands down. Maybe for somebody else, God is speaking to you today about how he's pursuing your heart and for whatever reason you have just been resisting and saying, God, no. God, I, I do not, I don't want to follow you right now. Or maybe for you, it's just been a flat out, no, God, I'm not going to follow you at all. I don't know your reasons. You know your reasons. But this morning, as you, you hear the Spirit of God in this place, you're going, okay, I want today to be a new day. Today's going to be a new day. Today, I'm going to follow Him. 
in faith and trust. I'm going to leave behind the other stuff. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to just slip your hand up this morning. I just want to pray for you. Anybody in that boat, you've been resisting, and today you're going, Jesus, today is the start of a new day. Awesome. I see your hands. Heavenly Father, God, you've seen each hand that has gone up today, and God, we celebrate that. Lord, we celebrate that, God, you are bringing new life. God, right in this moment. God, we thank you that today is the beginning of a brand new day. God, just like springtime is the season, God, where the deadness of winter is left behind and we move into new life. God, today, God, is going to be springtime in so many hearts today. God, we thank you for that. We celebrate that. And Jesus, I want to ask that, Lord, that God, for each person whose hand went up, that Jesus, that, that as they as they move on from this moment that we're having this morning, I pray, God, that, Lord, it would be with a, God, just a, a, a sense, God, of knowing your grace. God, you know where they've been. God, you know any kind of brokenness. And, God, I pray that they would walk out today, God, not with guilt, not with shame, but, God, may they walk out covered in your grace, covered in your goodness, covered in your hope, covered in your forgiveness. And, God, I pray that Jesus, Lord, each of us, each of us here today, God, as we leave today, that, God, we would walk out of here, God, not in weakness, but, God, may we walk out of here, God, in the resurrection power of Jesus. The resurrection power of Jesus. Lord, we have good news today. Jesus, you are alive. You are not dead, but you are alive. You are seated at the right hand of your Father today. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, God, to be bearers of this message. God, may we be messengers who take this good news, God, to neighborhoods, God, to fellow students at our schools, God, to coworkers, to family. God, may we be people who are like that light in the darkness, just beaming with the good news that Jesus is alive. Help us to do that, I pray. God, I thank you so much for each person here. I pray, God, your blessing on them. God, may your face shine on them in a powerful way. God, may they know your goodness. May they know your greatness. May they know all your glory, I pray. In your name, Jesus, and everybody said, amen, amen. Awesome. It has been so good.